satellite with a video feed zooming in. The words on the screen reveal the location somewhere in the Middle East. And as the camera, camera zoomed in from the masses, the crowd, the group, the one, it could have been any number of cities. The city was packed. And, and even more were pouring in for what appeared to be some sort of pilgrimage. But as that camera zoomed in, we see it focus on one, a spy. Let's call him Ethan. He's getting instructions from his leader. You're going in undercover. You know who we're after. We can't take him in broad daylight because the crowd, they will, they will riot We're going to lay a trap. You know what to say. And Ethan could tell by the the look on his face, something something had this guy terrified. His normally, he was respectable, but he had the look of a cornered animal who was desperate to get out. And as Ethan made his way through the bustling crowd, the the sunlight shone down, the warm rays on on the stone floor of the temple's outer courts, he saw him. Was this, was this really the guy that, that they were after? He, he looked so ordinary. They said, they said he was a dangerous heretic corrupting the people, but this guy, he could have been a carpenter. With a nod from his leader, Ethan moved in, made his way toward Jesus And attempted to bait him with a question that he hoped would lead to his arrest. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But then something unexpected happened. Ethan had come in with such confidence in the plan and what was going to happen. And yet as he talked with Jesus, he found himself captivated with his words. And the arrogance melted away, replaced with curiosity. Just then, some Sadducees, and you could tell, they were, their, their clothes revealed their wealth and how cozy they had gotten with their Roman occupiers. Some Sadducees started talking with Jesus. And, and they were talking about, you know, what happens with life after death. And, and they were talking about marriage and the resurrection. And, and just a hush fell over the crowd. It was totally quiet except for an occasional baby cry, which was totally fine because they love babies. (laughs) Everybody was leaning in. The one they called the Messiah, the King, descendant of David, born in Bethlehem in fulfillment of prophecy, they wanted to hear his answer because God was teaching about what happens when you die and everybody wanted to know. And that is where we're headed. That's where we're headed this morning. So my name is Ryan. I'm on the teaching team. We have spent a ton of time in Luke. We're just making our way through it. Today we are in Luke chapter 20. And if you guys can remember all the way back to Luke chapter 1, Luke tells us he's writing a letter to Theophilus for a purpose so that he and we may have more what? Certainty. And that's what Jesus is offering today, more certainty. What, what, what's it like when I die? Does it, 
does it even matter or can I just wait and see? Can I just get there and find, oh, like this is, this is what happens? Because there's some things, you know, like, like how do the dinosaurs exactly fit in? There's some things where it's like I have an opinion and I love to talk about it and kind of wrestle and stuff like that, but I'm not going to fight you. I'm not going to fight you about, you know, how that exactly happened. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to find out and someday just ask Jesus, hey, you know, how, and he, oh, okay, right? Something that, that we hold loosely, that I hold loosely. Because my philosophy is, if it's something that were important to God that we knew, he'd tell us. But unlike dinosaurs, what happens when we die is something that is talked about quite a bit in Scripture, and it's something that is central to what we believe. It it affects not just our future, but it affects the way we live today. So let's jump in to the text together. We are in Luke chapter 20. Verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees. And, and just a reminder, right? This is Holy Week. We've been talking about that every week. This is Holy Week, the week that Jesus in just a few days will be arrested. He came in on Sunday. It's probably Tuesday this day. He came in on Sunday, worshipped for the first time as king on the colt of a donkey. And he's been teaching in the temple And this is actually the third time, the third time this day that they are trying to trap and trick Jesus. They are desperate. They want to kill him. They want to arrest him. They fear the people. They send in spies. The leaders are desperate. And so there came to him some Sadducees. And so these are a different group than the Pharisees. They're they're wealthy religious leaders. And they have some pretty different beliefs. They don't, they don't believe in heaven, hell, angel, demons. They just take the first five books of the Bible, the, the Torah, the Pentateuch. That's their, uh, their Bible that they hold to and the prophets and all that. They don't, they don't hold to that as much. And so the Sadducees came to him. And it also tells us those who deny the resurrection, right? So that's, that's something that Luke is telling us about what the Sadducees believe. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. That strike anybody else is very strange. Right? You get get what it's saying, right? So if your brother dies, you need to have a child with your sister-in-law. That's what it's saying. Specifically, a, a son. And so this, 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 uh, this law comes from Deuteronomy 25. And it, it, we have to remember, marriages back there, they're often arranged. But, but without a male son, his brother's bloodline will die out. They need a male heir, somebody who can inherit everything. And so this was called leveret marriage, brother marriage, and that, that was something that was taught in Deuteronomy 25. We see it in Genesis uh, 38. Um, we see it with Ruth and Boaz, and, and actually both of those, uh, with Tamar and, and, and Ruth, they end up being in the genealogy of Jesus. And so they, they haven't gotten to their question yet, but they have a question for him. They say, now there were seven brothers... 
the first took a wife and died without children. And the second, which is, I mean, it's a fun fact. That is the shortest verse in the New Testament, 12, 12 Greek letters. And the, I'm, just, I'm just like, oh, that's really like, that's very, really short. And the second, and the third took her. Likewise, all seven left no children and died. So just a pause. Like, can you imagine, right? Your brother gets married and you're like, oh, congratulations, you get married. And then he mysteriously dies, right? And you're like, okay, all right, well, well, you know, okay, second brother. And then the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth. Your brother number seven. And you're like, man, that's a widow maker right there. I don't, I don't know how I feel about, about that, right? I'm just... <clears throat> And afterward, the woman also died, right? And everybody around goes, oh. there's, you know, <laughs> dangerous, right? So here's their question. Here's their question. In the resurrection, right? And if that, if that complicated story, what didn't tip you off that they're trying to trick him and that this is not a sincere question, right? Remember, this is the third time this day the religious leaders have come trying to trick Jesus. If that crazy question didn't tip you off, um, the way they started off with in the resurrection. What's the one thing that Luke tells us about the Sadducees? They don't believe in resurrection, right? So their question, I mean, that's, that's a tip. In the resurrection, in the res- resurrection, therefore, whose wife will she be? For she's had seven, for, she, for the seven had her as wife. And you can just imagine, right? Jesus has been teaching the crowd there. They want to, the leaders, the religious leaders are coming in. They're asking this guy who maybe is the Messiah. And so they're leaning in. They want to hear. Jesus takes this question and he's going to answer it, but he doesn't answer it right away. In fact, in, in, in the, this story is recorded also in Matthew. It's recorded in Mark. And in both of those versions, we get an additional detail. The, the first thing Jesus says, essentially, they ask a question, and Jesus says, you're wrong to their question. What are they wrong about? He knows, he knows that they don't believe in the resurrection. He says, you neither understand Scripture nor the power of God, you are badly, badly mistaken. Because to Jesus, it is obvious, it's obvious that we will be resurrected. And when he answers them, he answers, so they ask their question, they only believe in the, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the Torah, and they appeal to Moses in their question. And so when Jesus answers them, he answers them appealing to Moses, using the books that they, uh, they consider sacred. He says, But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passages about the burning bush where he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Jesus is saying, even if you only look at the first few books of the Bible, the Torah, it's obvious. Even Moses showed that God is not the God of the dead. He is the God of Jacob and Abraham and Isaac. And that's the first point, is that you will be resurrected. It's obvious. And do you ever think about your resurrection? It's like, 
I know that I'm going to go to heaven if you follow Jesus, right? I know, you know you go to heaven. In a couple of weeks, you're going to see Jesus on the cross in Luke. And I hope that wasn't a spoiler. Uh, the book's been out for thousands of years, right? So <laughs> Jesus is going to be on the cross. And one of the last things that happens is a criminal says, Hey, Jesus, remember me when you're in your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. So we know we go to heaven But what about your resurrection, right? Your bodily resurrection. Paul, Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians. There's tons of verses. I want, I'm just going to show you this one right here. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this. For the trumpet, he's talking about, by the way, so we go to heaven. He's talking about when Jesus comes back, Jesus' second coming. He says, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed for this perishable body that we live in must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. That's kind of hard to understand, I think, for me. Just this idea of, of how the dead will be raised and, and put on imperishability and, and raised in immortality. Benjamin Franklin the Benjamin Franklin that you're all familiar with. He, when he was 22, he wrote his epitaph and uh, just a, a, you know, like a saying that he wanted on his grave. And I'm going to read the epitaph because he put it in a different way, this idea of putting on imperishable. This is what he wrote. The body of B. Franklin, printer, like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out. And stripped of its lettering and gilding lies here. Food for worms. But the work, the work shall not be wholly lost. For it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and perfect edition, corrected and amended by the author. It's just like, it's another, it's like, you hear that, you're like, okay, I, 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 I don't totally get it, but I appreciate Ben Franklin's uh, explanation. Paul, in 2 Corinthians, he, he, he uses a different analogy. He talks about us being here in earth, on earth, and our, our body is like a tent. He's like, we're, we're, we've got, we're in, for a while, we're in this earthly tent, and we're groaning, and I long, and I desire to be in heaven, and, and have on my glorious tent. But for now, he, he compares the body to being a tent. And it's like the language of, the dead being raised, imperishable, putting on immortality and a tent and, and, and a book. If you read more about the descriptions of heaven in Revelation, John's description is fantastical. And it's, it's sometimes it's hard to, he, he says things like, I saw something like, and then he describes something. And I think part of the reason that this is so hard to wrap our head around is that God is so much more infinite than we are. And we, that we could think that we could understand all of this. It, to me, it makes sense if you think of, um, if you think of like a whale. And you wanted to explain the internet to a whale. I mean, come on, right? It's like, it's like what does a whale know about? The whale knows about water, kelp, 
fish. I mean, if you could even, even if you could communicate with the whale, I mean, good luck, right? Microprocessors, electricity, and communication. I mean, I guess you could say, you know, it's like sonar, and it's like, but not that, it, it, you know, and you can imagine what you would end up with is something with the whale would be like, uh, you know, I kind of get it, but it's really just, I can't. And it's, we are so far above what the whale can understand. Man, that picture to me of God and us it's like he's way greater than the distance between us and a whale. And the takeaway is this. Jesus is saying to them, you will be resurrected. You will live forever, subject to the following terms and conditions, right? I don't know if you, maybe you can't read that. Your current body will die. If you are a follower of Jesus, you'll be in heaven. At Jesus' second coming, your body will be resurrected and transformed to live in a new earth. So, Jesus, first he starts with, hey, you're wrong about this whole resurrection thing. I'm not, he hasn't even answered their question yet. You're wrong, is what he's saying. You will be resurrected. And then he goes and he, he does answer their question. <clears throat> he says to them, the sons of this age, now we're in, we're in verse 34, the sons of this age, this age, marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy or or declared worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are like angels. They are equal to angels and are the sons of God being sons of the resurrection, right? And these are contrasts between what it's like in this age and what it's like in that age. In this age, you marry and are given in marriage. But in that age, things are different. And that's the second point, right? That age, it's not like this age. For me, though, right, I mean, that, that's, that's the main point. But just in my context where I'm at, I mean, the big, the elephant in the room is like, what do you mean, what do you mean I'm not going to be married in heaven? That, to me, that is, I mean... I get that they're not going to be the same, but what do you mean I'm not going to be married in heaven, right? And I realize for many of us, a marriage relationship is, is like the most significant earthly relationship that you have. And how can heaven be heaven if you're not married? And other people, that may not be your experience, right? Maybe you come from an abusive marriage. Uh, maybe, maybe you've been... Divorced, maybe you know. There's tons of people that have never been married, right? And so, but but it still is a significant question. What's it like? And I think part of the reason, right, that you don't have that 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 age is not like this age, is you think about well, what is the purpose of marriage? Yeah, he says right there, neither marry nor are given in marriage. And these are just some biblical purposes of marriage that I uh, came up with. Um. And it's not meant to be all of them. It's just a couple of them, right? So, number one, it wasn't good. It's not good for for man to be alone. Not good for people to be alone, right? To fill the earth and multiply, to have a helper. And that marriage here is a picture of God's relationship to the church. And those purposes, at least those purposes, they're not needed in heaven. 
It doesn't mean we won't know each other. And, and I believe my relationship with Aaron will be deeper and more intimate than, than it's ever been. But, but we won't be married. And he gives us a reason why. He says, so he says they won't be, they can neither marry nor give in a marriage for, right? Because they can't die anymore. That, that purpose of procreation, no, nobody's dying. That's not needed anymore. And then another reason, right? Our focus often here in marriage is, is like raising up children, raising up children. But in heaven, we're the children. We're going to focus rather on raising children, on being children, on being sons and daughters of God. And then the fact that earthly marriage is a picture of God's relationship with the church. Aaron and I have been together a lot of years and we've had good times, we've had bad times, really hard times. And all of those times are better, the good and the bad, because we're together. That is a picture of what it's like to walk with Jesus. You're not guaranteed, uh, you know, your life is going to be hard. I don't, need to t- I don't need to convince anybody of that. Life is hard. But everything, the good times and the bad times, are better when walking with Jesus a lot of times, I was thinking about taking the ring off because on the inside of the ring, this ring, I have an inscription, uh, Ephesians 5, 21 to 31. And Ephesians 5 is, is thought of a lot as a great marriage passage. It talks about how a husband and a, and a wife are to interact with each other and, and, and what it's like. But it is also, and maybe even more so, a picture of God, of, of Jesus' relationship to his bride. So I want to just read a section of it and think of it less from the perspective of an earthly husband and earthly wife and more from the picture of Christ's relationship. This is Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he, Christ, might sanctify her, having cleansed her by, wash, by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, and that she might be, this is the church, might be holy and without blemish. And he talks about loving your body, and and at the end he ends with this. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. And we won't feel a sense of loss when we're in heaven. And, and I was trying to think about what, what that would be like or how, how I could illustrate that. And <clears throat> thought about this. I'm not going to dance. So, I mean, I heard, I heard like, a, you know, we really like Toby Mac in our family. And we listen to Toby Mac all the time. We, we blast the music. We have Alexas all throughout our house and we know the words. And we have a good time and we really enjoy it. He's great. A few years ago, we went to a Toby Mac concert. We went to Life Fest. And can I just say, it was unbelievable, right? I mean, it blew me away. And when we're there, I mean, we're as close as we can get, you know, and they're doing Christian moshing or whatever, you know. I mean, we're like as close as we can get. Toby Mac's right there, and he's got the Diversity Band, and I mean, doing all. In that moment, man, there was no part of me that was saying, like thinking about, 
the music back home and thinking about like comparing how it's different or how one is better. I was just fully present. I was fully there. I was just like a little bit, you know, starstruck. Like, wow, Toby, like right there. That to me maybe is a picture of, of what it could be like. And so this, that age is not like this age. It's different. It's different. Another way it's different, I mean, if you, and if, you, if you think of, if you're taking your cues from culture and you think about heaven, nobody would blame you if you weren't that excited about it. Because what, what is, you know, if you're not getting your, if you're not learning what heaven is like from the Bible, where are you learning it from, right? And what, because what, what does culture teach us? It says, hey, when you die, if you're good, then you get to be an angel and you get to be on a cloud and play a harp, maybe, I don't know, that could be different, you know, on a cloud with a harp in a church service that never ends. I mean, come, like, I, come on, right? So that's, that's I, I get it. That's not what scripture says. Scripture says we will have glorified bodies. There will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears, no more anguish, and we will be changed. That, that is of no, no doubt, right? We saw the verse. He said, in a moment, you'll be changed. Paul said, the, the, the body puts on the imperishable. Because even if we're in heaven, I sin every day. Amen. Thank you. I sin every day, right? So if I'm in heaven, I, I have to be changed because there's no sin in heaven. So if that age is not like this age. I read an interview um, by Randy Alcorn. And I really liked the way he put it. I'm just going to summarize, kind of summarize what he said. He said this about heaven. The idea that heaven is boring implies that God is dull. That's absurd. Our capacity for joy, pleasure, even enjoyment of food comes directly from God. He crafted our taste buds, adrenaline, and pleasure-conveying nerve endings, as well as imaginations and joyfulness. Suggesting that humans invented the idea of fun is arrogant. In scripture, eating together is associated with celebration, love, echoed in Jesus' words. And this is from Matthew 8. Many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And the finest foods and drinks will be prepared for us by God himself. And that's from Isaiah. Will there be X in heaven? I don't know. Whatever it is. Whatever, you know, mostly I don't know. You know, if we got, here I like Oreos and I, you know, you got to dunk your Oreos in 1% milk. Will there be that in heaven? I don't know. If there is, I'm not going to be drinking 1% milk. It's going to be 100% milk, right? None of this, none of this 100% milk. Paul describes in Philippians 1 this idea, right? This idea of yearning to be there. He says it would be better, better. His desire is to depart and be with Christ. And we'll say, when we get there, we'll say, I'm finally home. I'm finally home. A couple of weeks ago, uh, our two oldest boys went to districts. And uh, thank you, all of you who helped make that happen. That was, it changes lives, Right? And, and so they were gone for a couple of days, and we missed them. And, and so I was texting them, hey, praying for you, hoping you're having a good time, you know. And of course, what I hear back? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> oh, we didn't get the text. Oh. Um, 
I'm not bitter, don't worry. <laughs> so, so they come back, and we miss them. They've been gone, right? They're, they're, we, we hang around the house a lot, and so they were gone. We missed them, and I, I sat down on the couch, and they both sat next to me. I mean, like, like you know, you sit down, and it's like, whoosh, they right next to me. And I just had that feeling of, oh, it's so good that they're home, right? I think, I think that's what the feeling would be like. And of course, right after that, Carter on my right turns to me and starts gnawing on my shoulder. <laughs> and then Clayton on my right, or, you know, at, right about that exact same time, he turns and he whispers in my ear. He says, do we eat it, Gollum? So, I mean, but that fit right in, right? I still was like, oh, they're home. It was great. It was so perfect. So, you will be resurrected. That age is not like this age. And, and what do we do with that? How are we living like we'll live forever? Living like you'll live forever. Because how does it affect your life now, right? It can be hard to look forward to something that you know nothing about. In fact, I think the natural response, if something's coming and it's different and you don't know about it, can be fear and anxiousness. We took a trip uh, last year. Oh, so, so yeah, so living with joyful anticipation. That's, that's where we're going with that. We took a trip last year to Nicaragua. Nicaragua. And I was getting, uh, trying to talk to our kids and say, like, hey, are you guys excited? Are you excited? No, they're not excited. Right? What do they know about Nicaragua? Nothing. They don't know anything about Nicaragua. Here's what they know. It doesn't have their bed. It doesn't have the things they like to do. It doesn't have the, you know, I mean, it's, it's just totally different and unknown. And so as we started to talk with them about, hey, here's the kind of, some of the things we're going to be doing. Nicaragua, it has volcanoes. We're going to go look in a volcano, and we're going to partner with some missionaries to be a part of what God is doing and the people that need it there. And there's cool lakes, and there's animals. And as we started to explain to them what it might be like, I started to warm up to the idea, be excited about the idea, and we had an amazing time celebrating Christmas with believers in Nicaragua. In fact, for Lana's birthday last, a couple of weeks ago, she, she, she first asked for one thing. She said, hey, for my birthday, could we, go, could we go back to Nicaragua? That's what I want as my birthday gift. And it was, I mean, the airfare was, you know, absor- absorbent. We didn't go. But, but that's, that's what she wanted, right? Um. So that's, that's another reason to learn, right? It's so that we can look with joyful anticipation. That's why we're, we're talking about it. That's why we're learning about it. So we can think about heaven someday and say, oh, like Paul describes the yearning that we can have that. What's the last time you look really, really looked forward to something? Like I'm thinking about uh, maybe, maybe you had a vacation where you just got to go and you didn't have to plan all the details, right? Maybe you had a vacation, or maybe you think back to Christmas as a child, how you are just like, oh, Christmas is coming! Isn't it true that, you know, in the week before Christmas or the week before some great vacation, that everything is just better? You're more patient, you're more joyful, you're more happy, and it bubbles off to the people around you, and they're like, wow, you're in a good mood. Right? Your, your, your child could be sassy, your coworker could be short, and you're just like, doesn't matter, go on a vacation. Right? It's because you got something joyful to look forward to. 
And knowing more about what heaven is like helps us live in this life with a joyful anticipation. And that love that we feel overflows on others. Because the, joy, the hope of a joyful future leads to a more joyful today. And what's Luke's purpose? Second purpose, live with increased certainty. Uncertainty, man, without that, it breeds anxiousness, fear. And so, knowing that we're going to live like we're going to live forever, we can live with increased certainty. I saw a Francis Chan quote that I put on my Facebook page and got a bunch of flack for it. But it basically said this, anytime I read something in the Bible that disagrees with what I believe, I just assume that I'm wrong. And that is, that's how we want to live, right? If, if Scripture is telling us about what heaven's going to be like, it's like, okay, that's what it's going to be like. I just will take that. And then thirdly, with trust in God as his creation. I trust God with what he says because he has shown himself trustworthy. It means that we live like the creation not like the creator. We don't need to know everything. The scripture says in Isaiah that we are like dust on the scales, right? Like who, who, who knows how much water God's hand holds? We are just dust on the scales. And yet somehow God delights in us. And just to hold that tension, but that we trust in God as, as his creation and not think of ourselves more highly than we ought we don't need to have all the answers. I went to a Packers game, my first Packers game, Lambeau Field, uh, go Rams, uh, last year in November. It was great. It was super fun. The energy, I mean, it was not like so different, right? I mean, you guys, anybody who's been there knows that. It was unbelievable. And as I was looking around and they're, you know, I, I just saw something on the, on the scoreboard. It says, world champions, 1929, 1930. It's like, wow, they are really good. I mean, they are really good. I cannot believe that a football team from a small city in Wisconsin are the world champions. I wonder, like, how many, how many times has Wisconsin won the World Cup in soccer? Right? I mean, like, not that often. And so, so I, I was, like, looking into it. I'm like, oh, like, how did they beat Brazil and China and Germany and Spain? And, like, they're the world champions. And it's like, ah, I don't know, like, good job, right? But I don't know if you should say world champion because it turns out they're not even the North American champions, right? Canada doesn't have a football team. So, I mean, it's, it's really should just say, like, U.S. champions. And then I was looking at it more. It's like, well, actually, not every state has a, has a football team. And more than half the states don't have their own football team. And so I was like, okay, well, I mean, good job, Green Bay, but... I think you're thinking of yourself a little more highly than you ought. And uh, so trusting God, trusting God. And uh, I'm going to invite the band up here as we close. How did the story end? Jumping back to the Sadducees and their question. Some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher. And nobody dared to ask him any more questions. 
which is good because he had answered a bunch of questions that day, right? And so when we believe with certainty, when we believe in certainty what happens when we die, when we believe with certainty that we will be resurrected, that that age will be different than, that, than this age, and that, you know what, I can trust God as his creation, that leads us to a more joyful today. And we can, we can face the sorrows, we can face the hardship, we can face persecution, we can say to our enemies, Father, forgive them. Because we have that hope. Revelation 21 describes heaven like this. Behold, it will be the dwelling place of God. He is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away It's a city where the walls are made of jasper, where the streets are paved in gold. What kind of inheritance does a father give his dearly beloved adopted children in that kind of city? And so we can live our lives in confidence. We don't need to ask the question of of what's it going to be, when, why, how, but just, just focus on the who, the who of heaven, and that is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you are so good. You are so good. Help us to understand your word and help us, our whale-like minds, to comprehend what heaven is like because you talk about it and that means you want us to know. Help us to understand. Help us to take off uh, the, the... what we learn from culture and put on what you teach us, Lord, that it is something that we can yearn for, that, that, that Paul says it will be unbelievable, that he wishes he was there. And Lord, that that knowledge, that certainty would help us live this life with a greater joy. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.